Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's always uh, good to be with you guys. I got to tell you, this is, uh, you know, this group on Wednesday, this is one of the highlights of my week. I'm always very excited to come uh, with you guys and study God's Word. And particularly, uh, I enjoy, uh, uh, I get excited when I get to come and share. And so I appreciate Blake kind of letting me be a part of this and, and prepare some of the lessons. So as we've been, uh, so we've been spending some time in the book of First Peter so far this year, and we're going to continue along that path today. And as we study what Peter has to say to us, I just want to remind us of the lens that we're looking at this book through, uh, we, especially during what promises to be a very divisive and a very challenging year for us uh, in the months ahead as Christians. And so we remember that as Christians, you know, there's going to be times if, if we do what we are called to be doing and if we do what we're supposed to be doing, that we're going to look very different from the world around us. And it's becoming increasingly difficult for us to hold on to our Christian worldview and, and, and encounter the, the, the world around us. And so we're faced with a choice each and every day that we wake up. We have to ask ourselves, you know, what is it that I'm going to look, look like? What, what is it that I'm going to put my faith and trust in? Am I going to put my faith and trust in what the world has to offer, or am I going to put my faith and trust in the promises of God? So I want us to continue to kind of have that mindset as we move into our lesson today. And before we get into today's lesson, I also want to remind us of, of the kind of historical setting that Peter is writing this into. Blake's given us a, a great framework to, to, to approach this with. And so we remember that Peter's writing to a group of believers in the early church that are somewhat alienated for their faith. You know, not unlike our environment right now, that, you know, they look different. And uh, in a lot of ways, they're being persecuted for their faith. You know, they're being outcast. And uh, they may be even seeing some economic consequences because the fact that they, you know, they just look different. They are uh, are adhering to some different to some different practices and different, you know, values than the culture around them. And so that said, Peter's writing to this group of early believers for a couple of reasons. You know, first, he's writing to them to comfort them, to offer some words of encouragement to them. He's also writing to them to remind them of the reason for their faith and the, the stronghold that they have in Jesus Christ. You know, what, what Jesus came, what happened when he came to earth and died for their sins? What does that mean for their future? And he's also writing to give them some practical guidance, some pragmatic wisdom that they can use as they move forward in their lives in faith and obedience to God. So, you know, when we, when we approach uh, a Bible study, we always have to, to take a look at, you know, what did the writer originally intend to, the, to, to convey to the original reader? And then we begin to pull out, you know, what we can take away after we understand what the original reader was going to be taking away. And so our message that we're able to take away from this, from this book of First Peter is very much the same as what the original reader had. Because, you know, essentially our, our environment is really not all that different from, the, from these early Christians. So Peter's purpose for us is really essentially the same. You know, his words are going to comfort us. They're going to give us, you know, inner strength. They're, they're going to remind us of the reason for our faith and the stronghold that we have in Jesus. And they're also going to be, you know, we can, we can look at these words for practical guidance and, and, and wisdom as we kind of move forward in our own lives and faith and obedience. 
So as we kind of get into our lesson today, I just want to quickly cover kind of where, recount what we've covered so far. And we remember that, you know, these letters, they're written for us to, to read really uh, from start to finish in one sitting. So each one of these lessons is going to be kind of built off another. And they're going to be, there's going to be a very fluid message from one week to the next. So I want to, you know, quickly recap where we've been so far. So We've started out with Peter reminding us of the reason for our faith, and he, you know, specifically mentioned in our first lesson that, you know, we're living in this time, and our, and our early Christians are living in this time that the prophets pointed to and the angels sung about, and so he's specifically mentioning this pivotal moment in human history when Christ has come down to earth, God himself has come down to earth, and all of these messianic prophecies have been fulfilled. You know, and we remember when we read the Bible, you know, everything is pointing, everything before this point points up to this point in, in anticipation of it, and everything afterwards is just a reflection of it. So God comes down to earth. He, uh, Jesus lives the life that we should have lived. He dies the death that we should have died. And in doing so, you know, we have now been freed from our sins. We, we were captive of our sins. We were slaves to sins. And we've been set free. We've been forgiven for our sins. And Blake likened this event to the period of Jubilee. And the, the period of Jubilee was a period that was laid out in Levitical law that basically said that every 50th year, you know, the, the slaves would be set free. They, they would be freed and all debts would be forgiven. If property, right, if property had trans, transferred between one party to the next, the property rights would go back to the original owner. And so we have this, and, and essentially, you know, it's kind of a, we've pushed the reset button on society. You know, things have gone back to the way they were before. But in the case of Jesus, when Jesus has now come to earth, he has died for our sins, so we have now been freed from our sins as slaves to our sins. We've been forgiven for our sins, and then we've been reset kind of back to this, what uh, Blake referred to as the Garden of Eden condition. We've got this cosmic reset to where, uh, you know, we are now made right before God. And so with that in mind, I want to take us back to the Garden of Eden for just a moment. And, and if we go back to Genesis 1, we're going to see the world as God originally created it. So in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates all of, all of creation, and then he gets to create man. And in Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28, I'll read this for us, but this is where God creates man, and he tells us the very first thing that he ever tells man. He's, so this is uh, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. It says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. So God creates us in his image. And the, the very first command that he gives us is be fruitful and increase in number. So be fruitful and multiply. Again, you know, we're made in his image. And then he says, go be fruitful and multiply that image. And we see this, this same pattern kind of emerge in Scripture a couple of times, a couple of other times in the Bible. And each time it's when this reset button, this cosmic reset button gets pushed. You know, we see it first in the time of creation. And then we see it the next time at the time of Noah. 
you know, God, at the time of Noah, God floods the earth to rid it of all of its wickedness, and then we're left with this remnant of Noah and his descendants, kind of the, kind of the, the, the right standing of humanity before God. And so God makes this covenant with Noah, and as he makes this covenant, covenant, he says the same thing, almost verbatim, that he said in Genesis 1. He says, mankind I have made in my image, now go forth, be fruitful, and multiply that image. And so we see this you know, beautiful repetition in Scripture. And so we see it again at the time of Jesus. Uh, you know, when Jesus has come down, he's died for our sins. Consider this fact set now. You know, we've seen Jesus in the physical form of God dwell among, uh, dwell among us. So we've seen the physical image of God. And through his work on the cross, we've now been set free from our sins. We've become acceptable before God. You know, we were able to put on his righteousness. And so, in other words, we've kind of been remade into the image of God. We now bear his image. So we have the image of God. We were remade into the image of God. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a liberty here, but think for a moment. After Christ was crucified and after he was resurrected, what was the very last thing that he told his disciples before he was taken up into heaven? Does anybody remember that? That's, that's exactly right. Go forth and make disciples of all the nations. So in other words, you know, we now bear Christ's righteousness. We now bear the image of God and his message to us at the very end. You know, the, God's first, the first thing he, that he said to us and the last thing that he said to us before being taken into heaven is go into the, all the nations, all the world, and make disciples. Go and multiply this image of God. Now, we can't exactly be obedient to God's call for us to go out and multiply his image if we continue to immerse ourselves in sin, can we? So part of our response to this grace and this mercy that God gives us is our obedience to God, and specifically our endeavor to, to be holy as he is holy. And we started to talk about this last week, and we're going to pick up right there, you know, right, right where we left off last week. So in order for us to be holy as he is holy, we need to work on our sin condition. Yeah, and we're never going to be exactly where we need to be with respect to sin. You know, we're fallen human beings, but thankfully because of what Jesus has done, you know, we don't have to be. But we are called to live changed lives. And uh, there's lots of ways that we refer to this in the church. You know, we talked, there's lots of words that we can use to talk about what happens in our hearts as, as we live these changed lives. And last week we talked about the word sanctification. And sanctification, that's, that's just the process that we go to in response to what God has done to uh, become more and more like Christ. And we talk, uh, we use the word repent. And that just simply means that we are to turn away from our sins and turn towards God. But in any case, what we're talking about is a, just a spiritual transformation, you know, where we remove that which is not of God, and then we backfill it which, with that which is of God. In other words, it's kind of this out with the bad and in with God. And so that's a good segue into the first part uh, of our text for today. And so as we get into our first part, this is going to be in First Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1, and it's on your handout if you'd like to read with me, or you can read in your Bibles as well. But Peter's going to be- begin by telling us, a little bit more about this spiritual transformation. So it says this, it says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
So the first part of this spiritual transformation is the removal of sin. And Peter tells us to put away certain sins. And the, phrases, the phrasing that he uses here is we're, we're kind of taking, a, taking off sin like we're removing a garment. We're, we're taking off the filthy rags of sin. And it's interesting the sins that he mentions here. He, he doesn't mention the kind of heavy-hitting sins that, that Paul has mentioned or that we read other, other places in the Bible. You know, he doesn't mention... Uh, idolatry or sexual immorality or uh, greed or any like real violent sins, he kind of gives us the benefit of the doubt on those. He's saying, I'm assuming that you guys are taking the care of these sins, but what he mentions are the sins of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And these sins that he mentions are so prevalent in the world today that we can't even imagine a presidential election or even a presidential debate without each one of these coming you know, into play in, into every one of the arguments. And actually, and unfortunately, you know, these sins can even creep into the church. You know, I, I, I can say for myself that I have not, you know, I've not even gone this week without being hypocritical or envious. So, but, but he's calling us to something deeper. He's, he's calling us to, to be more and more made into the image of Christ. And I think the reason why he's wanting us to, to, to shed these sins is these are the very sins that cause division in the church. They're, they're the very sins that contradict brotherly love. They drive wedges in between believers. And so if we're going to be very successful in our call to be made more like Christ, to spread that image, then we really have to make a conscious break of these behaviors. We've got to be more and more like Christ in that, in that we have to point towards our cornerstone. Then Peter goes on to say that like newborn infants, we're to crave, we're to long for pure spiritual milk. And the milk he's referring to, it's not baby food. You know, Paul, Paul in, in one of his letters refers to us being on milk, on, on this milk before we can move on to solid food. But Peter's referring to something different here. His pure spiritual milk is the word of God. And just like a, you know, a baby is craving for its, its milk, you know, it, that's his, it comes from its source of life, its mother. And a baby cannot grow into maturity unless it has that pure milk. And so likewise, you know, our milk comes from our source of life, from the Lord, and we can't grow as Christians unless we have this, this word of God. And he also says that this milk is pure, you know, and the Greek word for pure that he uses here is adolos. And adolos is basically the opposite of the Greek word dolos, which is the word for deceit. And that was, the, remember, one of the sins that we just shed. So in other words, you know, we're, we're drawing a very distinct line here. We're taking away the deceit and we're putting on the truth, the word of God. We're, we're craving this pure truth word of God. And so we can't overestimate how important it is for us as Christians to be spending time in God's word. On a daily basis, we need to be immersing ourselves in it. And hopefully in this class, we've been developing some, some good disciplines and, and some craving of God's word. And it's so critical for us for, and for our growth as Christians. You know, not only are we saved by the word, we're introduced to, to Jesus by his word and, and we receive salvation through his word, but we're also sanctified through, the, through his word. And what I mean by that is, is when we read the word of God, you know, we get this clearer picture of who God is. We, we taste and see that he is good, and we, we see how sweet Jesus is and what he has done for us. And as Christ begins to taste sweeter and sweeter, sin in our lives just tastes more bitter. And it's, we kind of get this circular motion, and, and as sin tastes bitter, Christ tastes more and more sweet. And, and you know, one, it's, Christ and sin cannot be 
uh, high at the same time. Whenever one is rising, the other is falling. So, you know, Christ tastes sweeter, sin tastes bitter, and greater consumption of his word brings greater satisfaction. It brings growth as Christians. And so we get this upward spiral as, as we change our behaviors, as we become more and more like Christ over time, and we put into practice what Christ has already made us through his grace. And so as we immerse ourselves in God's word on a daily basis, the sanctification process begins to work in our lives. We begin to implement this, be holy as I am holy, and we begin to become little and little, more and more, uh, little by little, more and more conformed to this image of Christ. So as, as we read on, Peter's going to, he's going to take this, this sanctification and, and us becoming more like Christ, and he's going to uh, show us how this holiness links us to the image of God. So I'm going to uh, now start reading it, in, in ver- starting in verse 4. And as I read this, Peter's going to give us some metaphors that are going to describe, you know, who we are when we link up with Christ. So pay attention to the metaphors that he uses and kind of the identity and the purpose that, that those metaphors give us. So it says in verse 4, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter, he gives us these beautiful pictures of, of, of who we are when we link up with Christ. And, and not only that, but he also gives kind of our, our why we link up with Christ. And before we get into these metaphors, notice that, that Peter starts off this, this passage by saying, as you come to him. And he's not saying that, you know, as you come to him for the first time, you know, right when you meet Jesus. It, it, what he, the, the phrasing that he uses is as, as you continue to come to him. It's an ongoing fellowship, a, a, an ongoing communion as we abide in Christ. As it's a relationship. And so Peter says, as we come to him, as we, as we abide in Jesus, the living stone, we also are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And so as we look at this, this stone imagery, Peter, throughout this, this passage, he uses a lot of stone and rock imagery. And as we read that, we can begin to uh, connect the dots between this imagery that he's that he's sharing with us and another event that that an, an encounter that Peter had with Jesus during Jesus's ministry and what I'm talking about is when Jesus kind of names Peter and I'll take you back there he said so Jesus is with his disciples and he asked them he, he he asked them well who do the people say that I am and the, d- the disciples then respond and say well some say that you're John the Baptist some say that you're Elijah or maybe one of the other prophets and Jesus then kind of asks another pointed question towards them. And, and, and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And uh, Peter steps up and says, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. 
you, you're, you're the son of the living God. And you're, you're the cornerstone. You are the living stone. And then Jesus says to him, he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for it was not through flesh and blood that you were made known this. It was, it was from my Father in heaven. And now I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. So, Peter asks, so Jesus asks Peter who he is, and, and he turns around and says, you're the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the, the Messiah that, w- that we've been pointing to, that everything is, is going to hinge upon. You're the son of the living God. You're the living stone. You're the cornerstone. And Jesus then turns back around and says, blessed are you. You're right. I am the living stone, but you know what? You're going to be a stone too. So link up with me, and together we're going to build a church. And so Peter's reliving this message here. You know, he tells us, you know, Christ is the living stone, but we're like living stones. As Christians, we are little Christs, and we're going to build up this spiritual house. We're going to, going to build up the church. Each one of us as a Christian is going to be a rock that's kind of chiseled out of the quarry and shaped and, and made to be more and more like this image of Christ. And each one of us is going to have a unique task and unique project and a unique way that only we can fulfill in building this church. That's something that we're called to do. And a bit later, Peter continues on to this, this stone and rock imagery, and he uses three Old Testament passages that he quotes. And th- these would have been very familiar to the early reader because, you know, first of all, they would have been familiar with the Psalms and the prophet Isaiah from which these, these came. But, you know, they would have also been very familiar because Peter himself had quoted it. We're, we're, we know that from the book of Acts. P- Peter quotes these, these, uh, these passages in, in, uh, in, in some of his teachings. And also, Jesus himself from the Gospels, we know that he has quoted these passages, talking about this stone and rock imagery. And so he describes the stone as the cornerstone. And in building, a cornerstone not only is the stone that that the other stones rely on for strength and stability, but it's also the stone that all of the other stones in the wall are going to point to. You know, all three of the axes are going to point to this one cornerstone. And if if, if some of them aren't pointing to the cornerstone, then the building's not going to look straight. So as living stones, if we don't point to the cornerstone, if we don't point to Jesus, if we don't, you know, if we don't magnify his image, then the church is not going to look the way the church was intended to look. You know, if, if we want to be successful in multiplying the image of God, we need to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. He also describes this stone as something that some have, re- some have rejected. You know, the, the, the early Jews, did, they, they saw Christ as the Messiah and they said, no, that's not, that's not the one that we're waiting for. So they rejected him. And, but there's other ways that we can reject him. Even, even, if, even us knowing who, what we know about Jesus, that he was the Messiah, there's still ways that we can reject him. But, but you know, he also says that whoever does put their trust in him in this cornerstone, that you will not be put to shame. And that's a scriptural promise. And we know that God keeps his promises. So even though we may, we may feel outcast or we may be alienated by our, our culture, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, then God promises that we will not be put to shame. He describes this, this cornerstone as the stone that makes some stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Well, how do we stumble with Jesus? You know, we can certainly stumble if we deny him or reject him. But Peter also tells us we can stumble if we disobey the message, if, if we don't do what, what he's asked us to do. And, you know, we're called to be conformed into this image of Christ. And if we, if we aren't aligned with him, we're going to stumble. 
You know, several years back, uh, my wife and I got a new bed for our bedroom, and after the first several nights of sleeping on this bed, I found out that there was something about the bed that I hated, that I, that I did not like. And I didn't notice it when, when it was on the showroom floor, and I, I didn't notice it when the delivery guys were installing it in our room. But after sleeping on it the, the, the first several nights, I realized that at the foot of our bed was this footboard with a, cr- a wooden cross piece that sticks out. And it goes from corner to corner, but the, the footboard sticks out about four inches on either side of the bed. And I know this because my wife's side of the bed is the side of the bed that's closest to the bathroom. My side is the furthest from the bathroom. So in order for me to get, get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I have to walk around the two footboard corners. And inevitably what happens is I wake up with my eyes half open and I start walking and then bang, I just run my leg right into it. And then I walk around the other corner and bang. And, and so, uh, you know, inevitably this happened for months and months. And I would, you know, inevitably bruise my legs. I'd say a lot of bad words that my wife would tell me about the next morning. But it occurred to me, and in and, and order for me to not stumble over the footboard of this bed, I had to deliberately walk around the footboard. I, and, and so it had to be very intentional. And so and it, it, it occurred to me that, that this is the same with Jesus. You know, if there is something about Jesus, something that he's asking us to do that causes us to stumble, we need to change the way that we walk. We need to change the way, ch- deliberately change. You know, something about Jesus may offend us. We may, we may compromise on certain values if it, if it doesn't align with our political party, but that's not the way we're supposed to live as Christians. If there's something about Jesus that is inconsistent with the way we're walking, we need to change the way that we're walking. So as Christ is this living stone, and in this image of Christ, you know, we're made, and we're also like these living stones. We're being built up into a spiritual house. So let's align ourselves with him, and let's walk in a way that reflects him. Another one of the metaphors that Peter uses here is to, that we're to be a holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. So we're, being, we're to be holy priests, and that probably sounds really weird to us, that we're to be priests. But if we peel this back a little bit, we'll realize that it's not that weird at all. So if we're to be holy priests, we know what holy is. Remember, we, holy just means that we're set apart. We're set apart for God. We're set apart from our sins. We're set apart as a community to be God's people, to look different. But we're also set apart to do some work, to do God's work. That's what God designed us for. And really, that's the function of a priest. So a func- the function of a priest is to do God's work. And Peter tells us that our work is to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And I found this, this, this definition of spiritual sacrifice that I want, I want to share with you guys. It's, it's a great definition. It says, spiritual sacrifices are God-honoring works done because of Christ, done under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and the guidance of the Word of God. So these are God-honoring works, things that we do for the glory of God, done because of Christ, it's our response to him, to what he has done, to who he is to us, done under the direction of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes into us and indwells in our hearts, and also done under the direction and the guidance of the word of God, what we're craving, what, we're, what that's, that gives us our sustenance. 
And there's a lot of different types of spiritual sacrifices that we can make as holy priests, as doing the work of God. You know, we can do, we can use physical work, our, the physical work, our labor. You know, a lot of us are involved in volunteer work or, or mission work or really anything that we do in the name of God. It can be our spiritual sacrifice. We can also do, uh, offer spiritual sacrifices by praising and worshiping God, by doing good in the world, or by sharing in the resources that he's blessed us with, sharing with others, and sacrificing of ourselves for the benefit of others. We can offer spiritual sacrifices by bringing other people to Christ. And we can also af- offer spiritual sacrifices by s- simply praying, to, by taking time out to commune with God, to, to, to have fellowship with God, and to abide with him. So uh, these spiritual sacrifices, they, they are acceptable to God, but they're not acceptable because of what we offer. They're acceptable through Christ, is what Peter tells us. It's only through Christ that these spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God. And in that way, Christ is like our high priest. We remember that, that in the Old Testament, the high priest was the priest that goes into the temple on the Day of Atonement and uh, he offers up the sacrifice on behalf of all of the people. And if the sacrifice was accepted, then all of the people would have you know, th- their forgiveness of their sins. And so Christ is that same high priest for us. And we are in service to the high priest. Christ offers the sacrifice that makes us right before God. And our, our service to Christ, our linking up with this identity with him, is that we also get to link up with him and offer our own service to God. So think of yourself as a holy priest, an intermediary between God and humanity so that we might kind of exp- we might uh, multiply this image of God in that way. So moving on to, to some of these other metaphors and, uh, that are linking us up to God, and I'll go through these pretty quickly. Peter tells us that we are a chosen race. Jesus was, was God's precious and chosen one, and now we are chosen. And God doesn't choose us for anything that we can bring to the table. He doesn't choose us because we're going to be good singers or good, uh, good at bringing people to Christ or, or, or good teachers or good businessmen. He, he, just, he chooses us because he chooses us. It's, it's a pure act of grace. Nothing that we have done merits this act of grace. Peter also tells us that we're a royal priesthood. You know, we talked about how we're holy priests, but we're also royal priests. And in the Old Testament, priests were not kings, and kings were not priests. And, but, but we're both. You know, we, we, ha- we have this service to the Lord, but we all also have, you know, this, this inheritance, this, this royal inheritance, because we belong to the king of kings. We've got this royal lineage, Peter also tells us that we're a, a holy nation, a people set, or a community set apart for God. We're set apart to receive and share the blessings of God. And so, you know, again, again, when the world looks as, at us as a holy nation, what are they going to see? Are they going to see something that looks like other nations? Or are they going to see something that looks different, something that looks like Jesus? And lastly, Peter tells us <clears throat> that we are God's special possession. So where is it that we get our value from? It's from God. You know, we, are, we, we have true intrinsic value, a high value because of who we are in God. Last, last summer, there was a guitar that was sold at auction, at Christie's Auction House, and it ended up being the, uh, the highest price ever paid for a guitar. It was a 1969 Fender Stratocaster, and it, and it sold for almost $4 million. A 50-year-old guitar sold for $4 million. Now, 
I've never played a $4 million guitar before, but I would make a folding money bet that a $4 million guitar doesn't play or sound much different than a $400 guitar. But it, was, it commanded a $4 million price tag because of who it belonged to. And it belonged to David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. And he used that guitar to record and write substantially all of Pink Floyd's hits. So like that guitar, you know, we are valuable, not because of who we are, but because of whose we are, because we are the special possession of God. So in each one of these metaphors that, that Peter uses here, you know, each one of these is an expression of the identity that we have in Jesus. You know, each one is a way that we're made in God's image. And, um, you know, we can't assume any of these identities without the work and person of Jesus Christ. But because of who he, he is, we get to be all of these things. You know, we're these living stones. We're, we're pointing towards the living stone, the cornerstone. And we get to be, play an integral role in, in being built up into this spiritual house. Each one of us has a role to play in building the church. You know, we're also these holy priests, and under the direction of Jesus, our high priest, we get to be set apart to do God's work in the world, to make these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God because of who Jesus is. But God looks at us and says that you have the righteousness of my son, so you are acceptable. And then we're also a chosen race. Just as Christ was God's precious and chosen, we're also chosen. And not because of anything that we could offer or that we could bring to the table, but simply because of the grace of God. Because he says that I love you and I choose you to be a part of, of, of my life. We're also a royal priesthood with a royal inheritance. We're a holy nation, this community set apart for God to just share and, share and have God's blessings. And we're also this people of his own possession, a precious thing of value. You know, not because of anything that we've done, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. So in all of these identities, we are made into this image of God so that we can do what? So, so that we can multiply God's image, just like it said in Genesis 1, you know, so that we can multiply God's image. Peter tells us right here that we are all of these things so that we can declare the praises of him to all the world who called, out, uh, who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light so we can proclaim his excellencies throughout the world. And so we're made into this image of God. So guys, I just challenge us to go out and multiply the image of God. Let's go out and look different. Let's be uniquely and distinctly Christian. In a world where we could be Republicans or Democrats, let's be uniquely Christian and look different. Make sense? All right, so uh, for our application today, I have a little bit of a homework challenge for us. So, uh, you know, as part of our longing for this pure and spiritual milk that we're craving that, that helps us to grow as Christians, I would invite each of us to take one of these metaphors that, that Peter has given us, maybe something that we didn't cover in great depth today, but take one of those metaphors and do your own kind of mini personal Bible study on that. You know, and I, I mentioned there that, that, that there's no substitute for the Word of God. You know, that's where we, where we get our life from. But we are also blessed with a lot of tools that we can use to, to help us navigate the Word of God and kind of cross-reference the Word of God. You know, your Bibles, they, they probably have cross-references in the margins that you can kind of look and see where those scriptures or where those words are used throughout the Bible. Or you might have a Bible with a concordance or a Bible dictionary or a study Bible with with great study notes, or even some commentary. So my challenge to us would be to spend some time looking at this scripture and then go, go into the cross-references. See how God reveals himself to you. I'm confident that he will, and I'm confident that he will you know, just show you who you are when you unite up, when you unite up with Christ. Good deal? Yeah. All right. Well, let me pray for us, and then we will adjourn. 
Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this group of gentlemen, and I thank you so much for just the opportunity that we have to, sh- to read your word and study your word together. We thank you for the gift of your son Jesus Christ and who he makes us and what he has done for us. We know that we can now bear your image. We, we now have right standing before you. We can go boldly before the throne and approach you. And not only that, but have a personal relationship with you. And we know that as we do that, Lord, we become transformed. We become transformed to be more and more like your son, Jesus. And we know that it's your goal for us to, to spread Jesus' love throughout this entire world to, in a world that's divisive, God, and in a world that that really needs your love. We are called to be distinctly Christian and to share that with the entire world. We love you, Lord, and it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.